0: If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like you to take it out. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you, underneath you, close by, in one of the seats. You can find the book of James. Our passage this morning is James chapter 3, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 18. There are some notes in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along with the notes, you can have an idea of where we're headed and what we're going to talk about. Somewhere towards the end of the 20th century, first world nations transitioned from uh, the industrial age to what is now called the information age. In the industrial age, economies were primarily powered by making things. In the information age, economies are primarily powered by making and managing information. And you say, well, we still make a lot of things. We do, but the things that we make are often powered by and made by a tremendous amount of information. And I just want to give you some numbers. I really went down the, the Internet rabbit hole on some of the numbers I'm about to share with you, and I just I finally had to stop and cut a bunch of stuff out. But I'm going to share some numbers with you that really are mind-boggling, thinking about digital data as we live in the information age. So we'll put this up on the screen, just basic terms for digital data, a byte is one piece of information, a single piece of information. A thousand bytes make a kilobyte. A thousand kilobytes is a megabyte. A thousand megabytes is a gigabyte. A thousand gigabytes is a terabyte. A thousand terabytes is a petabyte. A thousand petabytes is an exabyte. A thousand exabytes is a zettabyte. And a thousand zettabytes is not a Yoda byte, but a Yota byte byte. So you're tracking with me. You got your mind wrapped around all those numbers? Let me just try to make it plain, as plain as I can, about how big some of these terms actually are. And I'll just sort of steal my own thunder and say, by the time we get done talking about data this morning, we're going to be down on the bottom part of that scale, okay? So let's start with the byte. Imagine you print out a physical piece of paper you can hold in your hand and it has one letter on the page. One piece of data. That's a byte. Okay? Now take that same piece of paper. I, I tested it this week with normal font, normal, normal margins to see how many it would take or how many pages it would take. You can put a thousand letter A's pretty easily on one piece of paper. Okay? So, one piece of paper with one letter A, that's a byte. But if you want to go to a kilobyte, you've now got a piece of paper with a thousand letter A's on it. Okay? If you want to move next to a megabyte, you take that same piece of paper with a thousand characters on it and you stack a thousand of those pieces of paper up. So, a book, a thousand pages, that is where we're at on the megabyte level. Gigabyte level, you take those pieces of paper with all those A's and you just start throwing them in the trailer of a semi-truck until you fill the whole thing up. When the whole thing is filled up, then you've got a gigabyte. You say, what about a terabyte? You take your ax, and you go out to the forest, and you cut down 50,000 trees. Turn them into paper. Print A's on all of them. Now you're at the terabyte level. You say, tell me about a petabyte. I know, you're dying to know, right? It's a book with 250 billion pages. 250 billion pages. I started reading a few weeks ago uh, War, uh, no, not War and Peace. I started reading uh, the Dickens book, Tale of Two Cities. And I'm like three chapters in and I already feel like it's never going to end. But I can't imagine 250 billion pages. That's the petabyte. An exabyte is one trillion Books, each with a thousand pages, each with a thousand characters. Now you're on the exabyte level. We haven't even talked zettabytes or yodabytes, but let's get there, okay? Dial it back in your brain to 2006. You remember what you were doing in 2006? In 2006, if you added up all the recorded data on planet Earth, all of it, it totaled 161 exabytes. And you say, that really doesn't mean anything to me. I, I don't have any frame of reference for what that means. Here's what it means. Remember our little piece of paper with 1,000 characters? We're putting them in books, right? You start stacking those books up. You make 12 nice, neat stacks. They're going to need to be straight because they're going high. And you start on earth, 12 stacks of those books, and you stack them all the way to the sun. That is 161 exabytes worth of data. Fast forward it a little bit, 2010, all the recorded data in the world is 988 exabytes. You say, well, how much is that? Well, this time you get rid of your 12 stacks and you just need one stack. But this time that stack needs to go all the way from the sun to the planet, and it is a planet, Pluto, all the way, one book. From the sun to Pluto, stack them all up, one on top of the other, that's 988 exabytes. You say, where are we at today? How much recorded data in the world today? 2018, all the recorded data in the world is closing in. Several things said we're not there yet, but we're closing in on three zettabytes. Three zettabytes. So you got your stack of books from the sun to Pluto times three. That's a lot of data. It's an incredible amount of data. I mean, I could go on and on with the numbers and the billions and the bytes and all this stuff. Let me just share something that to me is a little bit more understandable and still makes my mind blow when we're thinking about this information explosion. How many of you have ever watched a video on YouTube, right? If you were here last week, we watched one. We watched the kid getting pounded in the head with the thing spinning around. We talked about that was like the book of James, okay? So YouTube, an amazing amount of information on YouTube, uploaded all the time my my kids two of my kids my little girls came to me a few weeks ago and they said dad we want to start a youtube channel i said what what are you going to do on youtube that people are going to watch and this is what they said we're going to play with our toys and video it and people are going to watch it and i said baby that's not a thing nobody does that and they said oh yes they do And they took me to kids' YouTube on their little iPad, and they showed me videos of little girls and some of grown adults, which is kind of (laughs) weird, playing with toys, just playing with dolls, dressing the dolls, playing house with the dolls, and they videoed it, and they uploaded it, and millions of people have watched it. And I started thinking about advertising dollars, and I said, let's get it going. Let's start the YouTube (laughs) channel. How do we set that up? Okay, every minute... Of every day, every minute of every day, 48 hours of new video content is uploaded to YouTube. Two days worth of video. Every single minute, which means by the time you've been sitting in here listening to me ramble on about all these numbers, you're way behind on your doll videos and your little kids getting hit in the head videos and all the videos you like to watch. Corey's behind on people slipping on the ice and falling down videos. All the things you like to watch on YouTube, you're way behind because every minute there's 48 hours worth of it being uploaded. It's just information, 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 information information. We live in the information age. What we lack is wisdom. That's because information is not the same thing as wisdom, right? You you get into this rabbit hole, this wormhole of all this information stuff, data bytes, storage, all this book stacked to Pluto and back, and you start reading about people talking about artificial intelligence and all these different things that just make your head explode, what you've got to remember is that information is not the same as wisdom. We have all the information in the world. In fact, we have way too much information. We have more information than we could ever take in in a thousand, in a million lifetimes. What we're lacking is wisdom. That's because wisdom is not information. And we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, in the biblical sense, is fearing God, knowing God's will, and living in light of God's will. There's some information involved in all of that, in knowing truth about God and knowing truth about His revealed will, the scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. Information is part of it, but information doesn't automatically translate to wisdom because there's also a heart component. Fearing God, knowing His will, and actually living in light of His will. When you put all those things together, you have wisdom in the biblical sense. That's what we're talking about this morning at the end of James chapter 3. James 3 circles back to the issue of wisdom. It's an issue that was first raised in chapter 1. And if you have your Bible open, you might just flip back over to James 1. And you might look at verse 4. James says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not, When I die, I want to go to heaven. The goal of the Christian life is not, I want to be healthy and wealthy and happy now. The goal of the Christian life is that God makes you just like Jesus, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And look what James says in verse 5. If, here's a hypothetical, and you can almost see him rolling his eyes as he says if, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's a possibility that some of you may be lacking in this area, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So he starts off the whole letter and he says, look, you're going through these trials. And you're to rejoice in those trials because God has a purpose in it. He's making you perfect and he's making you complete. He doesn't want you to be lacking in anything. And one of the things you are lacking right now is, in fact, wisdom. You need more wisdom. You need to fear God more. You need to know his will better, and you need to actually live in light of his will. So if you're lacking in that area, you should ask. And then he's talked about some other issues, but he's circling back, right? He's coming back around in chapter 3, and he's going to talk to us about wisdom. And the big idea is really simple when you connect the dots back to chapter 1. Wisdom is an important part of Christian maturity. If we are to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If God wants us to be spiritually mature, this is something that's got to be true in our lives. We have got to have wisdom. You can't be perfect or complete. You can't be spiritually mature without it. And so James is going to talk to us more about wisdom. I'd like you to follow along in your Bible. If you have it open, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, the Word of God says this. That's the word of God. Let's pray together, and then we'll jump into James 3. Father, we're thankful for your word. We believe that it's true. We're thankful for this book of James, for the challenge that it presents to our hearts and to our lives. Father, this morning we come to you, just like James told us in chapter 1, we come asking for wisdom. We need you to give it to us, Father. We need you to work it into our hearts and into our lives, we want to be people who fear you. We want to be people who know your will. And we want to be people who actually live in light of your will. Father, give us wisdom as we think through this description of a wise person, of wise Christians. Father, give us discernment to know that, that these things are true of us or they're maybe not true of us. Father, do a work in our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back before the information age, before even the industrial age. I want to go all the way back to the year 673. I want to tell you about a man named Bede. He was born in what we call England. Uh, We don't know what he looks like, but that's a mosaic of somebody's interpretation of what the Bede looked like. Uh, You can see the Latin up above him. Historians usually refer to him as the venerable Bede. And he was quite the guy. He was quite, quite an intellect. He was a, an English monk at the Monastery of St. Peter. And you can see sort of an aerial view. That was about the best picture I could, I could find of the current monastery there. And then you can see the ruins of what may have been there before, back in the day when the bead lived there. He was quite a smart guy. In uh, 1899, I know that's much more recent, but in 1899, the Catholic Church recognized him as a doctor of the church. They don't just hand those out to anybody, but they look back at church history and they find people who made great contributions intellectually to the church. They recognized him as a doctor of the church. He was fluent in Greek. He was fluent in Hebrew. He was fluent in Latin, all the classical languages that he needed at the time to study God's Word in the original form. He wrote poetry. Uh, He studied astronomy, which is an amazing thing if you dial it all the way back to the 600s that he was studying astronomy and charting things and learning about the stars and what was in the sky. He's called by some the father of English history, just because many of his writings didn't necessarily have to do with the church or the Bible, but he also just wrote history books. And he wrote the history of the peoples who lived in, uh, in Britain at the time and where they came from and the different tribes and the rulers and all of these different things. He's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant intellectual. But he understood that information is not the same as wisdom. I just want to share with you one quote from the bead. He says this, Someone who lives in a humble and wise way will give more evidence of his standing before God than any numbers of words could ever do. You can tell me all day long how wise you are. You can tell me all day long how wise someone else is. But really, let's just look at their life. Bede says, let's just forget the words. Let's not not talk. Let's just cut to the chase and look at the way somebody lives their life. And there's going to be more proof in that than thousands upon thousands of words. We can write book after book after book, volume after volume. All we really need to do is look at your life. And that's a a great picture of what James is telling us right out of the gate here. According to James, what are the evidences of wisdom? There's four of them I want to point out to you. And the first one is this. Wisdom results in action. If you're a wise person... It's going to result in you doing or not doing certain things. Wisdom, when it's truly present, always translates into action. Look what James says in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, circle the word conduct, let him show his works, circle the word works, in the meekness of wisdom. If you're wise, it's going to be apparent that you're wise in your conduct and in your works. Listen, that fits perfectly with what we've seen so far in the book of James, right? We've titled the whole study, Faith That Works. James says there's a direct connection between your faith in Jesus and how that works out in your life. And we've just come out of chapter 2 where he says, look, there's a certain kind of faith that believes all the right things about God, but that actually doesn't live as if any of it, any of it was true. That's demonic faith. It doesn't have any value. Can that faith save you? And the answer we saw in chapter 2 is no, it can't save you. It's worthless. It's worthless. So there's a connection between our faith and our works. It shouldn't surprise us that when James brings up this issue of wisdom, he says, look, that same connection exists between wisdom and the way you live your life, your conduct, your works. Look, you can tell me all day long that you're a wise person, but if I look at your life and I see you making foolish decisions, you're a fool. doesn't matter how many Bible verses you can quote. It doesn't matter how many patches you got in Awana, like you memorized all the verses or maybe you're too old for Awana, you went to Bible Drill and you learned all the stuff in Bible Drill when you were growing up or whatever. None of that matters if it doesn't actually translate into your life. James says true wisdom is going to show itself in your conduct, in your works. You can talk to me about people you work with, your kids, your parents, whoever, and you can tell me, oh, they're so wise, oh, they're so smart. Oh, they're so bright. But if I look at their life and they're living like a fool, the conclusion James would have me draw is, they're a fool. It really doesn't matter what they know if it's not translated into everyday life. So number one, what are the evidences of wisdom? Well, wisdom results in action. You can see it in somebody's life. Number two, wisdom makes peace. Wisdom makes peace. Look at verse 16, 17, and 18. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom of wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I just ask you to think about your life for a moment, to think about the relationships you have at home. Think about the relationships you have in our church. Think about the relationships you have where you work or where you go to school. If those relationships are constantly marked by conflict by frustration and tension and anger and bitterness and all of that sort of stuff that James is talking about. If that's the mark of your relationships at home, here, at work, at school, wherever, what James is saying to you is you lack wisdom. You can sit around and you can just blame everyone else. right? And I suppose there's a an outside chance that if that was true of you, if all your relationships are marked by by tension and fighting and struggle, maybe, maybe you just happen to live with and go to church with and work with a bunch of fools. But you're the common denominator in all your relationships. And James is saying the wise person is a peacemaker. They don't live a life of tension and conflict with everyone that they deal with. Right now, understand that the gospel creates some tension when you're living in the world. understand that following Jesus is going to put a strain on some relationships. That's a whole nother message. But what James is saying is just, just look at your relationships on the most basic level. Are they marked by conflict? Are you always mad at people? Are you always talking about how dumb people are? Are you always wishing you were around people who are more like you or not so frustrating? Or, or are you a peacemaker? Are you somebody who lives at peace with other people? Because according to James, the wise person is a person who makes peace. Number three, wisdom listens to others. The wise person listens. We talked about this a few months back when we worked through the book of Proverbs. We talked about words, words that we say and words that we hear. It's a theme in Proverbs and it's a theme in James. Look at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. If you know somebody that boasts all the time, you know somebody who's not very good at listening. All they want to do is tell you how much they know. All they want to do is tell you how smart they are. They don't want to listen to anything that you have to say because they're, they're ready to just puff themselves up. To boast about this or about that. Look what James says in verse 17. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle. It's open to reason. The wise person is open to having a discussion about something with someone they disagree with. And they'll listen. Reason with me. Talk to me. Show it to me in the Bible. If I'm wrong, correct me. The wise person doesn't stand back with their arms folded and say, well, I know everything that I need to know. You're a fool and I've got it all together. But the wise person says, man, I, I know that I may be lacking in wisdom. Let me, let me try to see it from your perspective. And maybe I'm wrong and you're right, and maybe I need to change my mind on this issue. We live in a strange time in the United States when you think about people in the public eye. It's a strange time where it's almost unforgivable to change your mind about anything. Once you stake out a position, you just, you got to die on that hill. And there's no place for just saying, you know what, I was wrong, and I I changed my mind on that. If you say that today, people may act like you're, well, his judgment is bad. Well, well what? we can't trust him. He's, he's wishy-washy. He's a flip-flopper. Look, I hope, however old you are, that sometimes your mind changes about things. I hope sometimes you sit down and have conversations and you say, you know what, I never really thought about it from that person's perspective on a a spiritual issue or a political issue or a moral issue or whatever it may be. I hope that you're open to reason. I'm not saying that we're open to changing what the Scripture says. I'm saying you're open to the possibility that you may not have all your spiritual ducks in a row. And you're open to that and you're humble and you say, you know what, I, I can listen. Maybe I need to change my mind. Maybe I need to think differently. James says that's a mark of wisdom. You see that in Proverbs 19, verse 20. book of Proverbs says, Listen to advice, accept instruction, that you may gain wisdom in the future. Don't be a, a boastful person. Don't be a know-it-all, but be willing to listen. Number four, wisdom produces humility. Humility. Verse 14 and 16. Twice in our passage, James warns us, about jealousy and selfish ambition. The fool is focused about themselves. They're wrapped up in jealousy. They're wrapped up in selfish ambition. They're number one. They're looking out for themselves and what they want and what they can get out of it. The wise person isn't isn't in that position in life. They're not wrapped up about themselves, and it doesn't necessarily mean they think less about themselves, like I'm just so lousy and worthless. It's just that they think about themselves less. They don't live their lives thinking about me. They live their lives thinking first about God and secondly about others. That's the idea of true humility. You're not focused on yourself, but you're focused on God. You understand that God is holy. He's not like us. He's got to be the sinner. And you understand, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a foolish sinner in need of wisdom. And when you get those two pieces of the puzzle together, James is saying you're well on your way to wisdom. Wisdom produces humility. Here's the cool thing. I want you to think about this. If this is all we had from James in the Bible, it would be enough to say this is what wisdom looks like. If we just had this letter and James says this is what wisdom looks like, it would be enough for us to say, okay, that's good. We can sort of check through these boxes here. Wisdom, uh, it results in action and wisdom makes peace and it listens and it produces humility and we could sort of think all that through. But it's not all we have about James in the Bible. In the book of Acts, we have the story of the first Christians and the church beginning to grow. And there's a story right in the middle Of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, and James is part of it. And in that story, all of these pieces of the puzzle that James has given us about wisdom, all of those things actually play out in his life, which is a beautiful thing because not only do we have it inspired by the Spirit of God in the book of James, this is what wisdom looks like, but we can also see James was a guy who actually walked the walk. He was a guy who, who actually lived out what he was talking about. So here's the backstory, story in Acts chapter 15. You can go back and read it. I'll just try to hit the high points for you. In the early church days, Jesus has ascended back to heaven and he sent his followers out to preach. Well, the first people they bumped, out, they bumped into when they went out to preach were all Jewish. They're all mostly Jewish people living there in Jerusalem, and so they're bumping into folks, and they're sharing the gospel, and people are getting saved, and it's awesome. Thousands of people are coming to faith, but they're all Jewish. And eventually, it doesn't take very long, the gospel begins to spread outside of Jewish corners. There's a guy named Philip. He takes the gospel to Samaria. There's a guy named Peter. He takes the gospel to a a Roman centurion named Cornelius. There's a guy named Paul and Barnabas, a couple of guys. They team up and they take the gospel intentionally all through what we call Turkey, what they called Asia, sharing the gospel with Gentiles as they went. And the the Jews had been scattered from their homeland by this point in history, and so every place they went, every place the gospel went, you had a few Jewish folks that lived in the town, and you had a whole bunch of Romans that lived in the town. You had Jews, and you had Gentiles. And as the gospel spread, you have Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus, and you have a whole lot of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. And one of the very first issues in all of church history was this question. When Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, can they coexist? Can they come together in the same church family? Or is is that just too much cultural distance to overcome? Their cultures were very, very different. And both of those groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, had been trained in the ancient world by their parents, by their communities, by their, their, uh, their families to hate each other. The Jews didn't think highly of the Gentiles, and because of that, the Gentiles didn't think very highly of the Jews. No one liked each other. But now you've got all these people coming to faith in Jesus, and the question is, well, where are they going to go to church? Are they all going to go to church together? Or do the Jews need to go over here, and do the Gentiles need to go over here? Or some people said the Gentiles just need to go away. We don't want Gentiles at all. Some people said, no, 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 the Gentiles can come into the church. They just need to become Jews completely. They just need to accept our culture. And you've got all these different sides sort of weighing into the, de- the debate. What's going to happen? Are they going to stick together, unified by the gospel, or are they just going to go their separate ways? So what they did, a bunch of good Baptists, they called a meeting. Let's have a meeting. Let's get everyone together in the same room and let's talk it out. Wasn't a bad idea. So everybody met in Jerusalem. It was the first ever church council. Everybody showed up. Peter was there. Paul was there. James was there. And they all sit down and they talk. And you got these people over here saying, no, 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 Gentiles, they can take a hike. Forget the Gentiles. And you got people over here saying, no, we're good, we're good with Gentiles as long as they become Jews. And you got some people saying, Lem, maybe it would just be easier if we had Jewish First Baptist and Gentile First Baptist. And we just kind of, will agree to be partners with separate addresses. Maybe that would be the best way. And then Peter stood up. And Peter said, look, here's what I can tell you. I've preached the gospel to Jews and I've preached it to Gentiles. And both of those groups of people received the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way. God sent His Spirit, Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, the Helper, to both of those groups without distinction. So I, for one, think we should stay together. And then Paul stood up. Remember Paul and Barnabas been on these mission trips. Paul stood up and he said, look, all I can tell you is this. As we go out and preach, we've seen signs and wonders done among the Jews and we've seen signs and wonders done among the Gentiles, both. Like, God hasn't discriminated between those two groups. He saved Jews and he saved Gentiles. He, He saved both of them. Why would we we separate if God's done the same thing for all of them as we preached? I think we should stay together. And then the pastor of the church in Jerusalem stood up, and that man was James. And James ends the meeting by putting all of these characteristics on display as a wise man. It's not just something he wrote in a letter and forgot about, but it's something he actually lived out in real life. He listened. Look, he was the bigwig in the room. The whole thing was happening on his turf. He could have just stood up from the beginning and said, Look, this is how it's going to be. I'm Jesus' half-brother. I'm the pastor of this church. This is what we're doing. Instead, he listened. Say what you think. Share your experience. Remind us what the Scripture says and what the Spirit of God is doing. And He listened. He was a peacemaker. He didn't stand up and call anybody names. There were some people there who probably deserved to be called names. There was probably a part of James that wanted to stand up and say, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Why would you bring that as a suggestion? He didn't do that. He was a peacemaker. James was a humble man. In his answer, go back and read it in Acts 15. He doesn't really focus on the Jews and he really doesn't focus on the Gentiles. He really focuses where the focus belongs on God. If this is what God has done, then this is probably what we should do. So he's listening and he's making peace and he's showing humility and then he takes action. He sort of gets everyone together and he says, Here's what we're going to do we're going to write this letter. The Gentiles and the Jews are going to stay together. These are some things that we need to be aware of and be careful of, but we're not splitting up. God has brought us together. We're not splitting up. We're staying together. That's wisdom, listening, peacemaking, humility, taking action. We need that in our churches. If ever there was a group of Christians that lived on this planet that needed that kind of wisdom in our churches, it's Christians in the United States of America. Because all too often what our churches look like, if you have your Bible open to James still, our churches look like James 3, starting in verse 14. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting, being false to the truth, Wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual. James says it's also demonic. Again, verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder, every vile practice. That's what a lot of our churches look like. We have a little disagreement with each other and we say, well, we can't stay together. I can't stay there. Do you know what that person did to me? Do you know what they said to me? Or do you know what they did not do for me? I, I can't be a part of that. I'm leaving. Well, I, we, we can't, I can't go to that church. I can't be part of there because there's not very many people that look like me there. So I, I have to be with people who look like me. Well, I don't, I don't agree with, with something that happened there. I'm not talking core doctrinal things. I'm just talking the silly things that we get so upset about sometimes. So maybe we should just go our separate ways. And in the Baptist world, we've gotten really spiritual about it. You know, we don't just come out and say, there's a little bit of jealousy and, and selfish ambition here, and I'm just going to pack my, b- my bags and my toys and go down the street because I'm angry. We say, you know, I, th- I think the Lord's calling me somewhere else. I think the Lord has just called me to go to a, a new place, to break fellowship over something foolish, to go over here. Or if there's enough of those people saying that, we say, you know, it's time for us to plant a new church. Let's just plant a new church. You guys go over there. You do your thing. We'll call it a church plant. It's a church split. We're going to call it a church plant because that sounds a little bit better. We live in a culture that promotes the idea that you should shop and just hop for whatever tickles your fancy at church. Like you're the consumer and this is some sort of product that you're buying. And if it's not the product you want, well, someone else is selling what you want. That's sort of how we approach church conflict in church unity. It's completely different than the way James approached it. Completely different. James says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's listen to each other for two seconds. And then let's put our focus on God, not on ourselves. Let's not alienate people, but let's try to be peacemakers. And then let's figure out a course of action where we can go forward. And let's take action. That's biblical wisdom on display. That's what we need in our church. That's what we need in our churches. Two last thoughts and we'll wrap it up. The kind of wisdom James wants us to have is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. James 3.15 says it comes from above. James 3.17 says it comes from above. If you look at James 1.5, it says God is the one who gives this wisdom to you. And I just want you to put all these pieces together. I'm going back to James chapter 1. James starts off the letter and he says, I want you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. However, however, some of you may lack wisdom. So here's what you need to do. And he doesn't say you need to look inside your heart and try to find it. And he doesn't say you need to take the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of this age. He says you need to ask God to give it to you. That's straight out of the book of Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commandments, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, ask God to give it to you. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Then you will find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You don't have it within you. You don't need to dig deeper. You're not going to find it on the self-help section of your local bookstore. There's no worldly perspective that can give you this kind of wisdom. It only comes from God, which means if you're going to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, there's something that you really need God to do in your life. You cannot do it on your own. That leads me to the second point at the bottom of your notes. The last thing will end with this. The kind of wisdom James wants us to have is only found in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. And I want to explain that to you on two levels. On the simplest level, we would say Jesus is the ultimate example of this. I told you a story about James and how he lived it out. That was great. I could tell you some other stories about James where he didn't look so wise. We could always look to Jesus and say, this is what wisdom looks like. He lived it out. But more importantly than that, We need to back up and we need to say the kind of wisdom James wants us to have is only found in Jesus. That's because Jesus died on the cross so that we could have this kind of wisdom. You may have never thought of that in your life. Why did Jesus die on the cross? I teach my kids, you teach your kids. It's because we're sinners. He died for our sins. It's true. It's also true that Jesus died on the cross to give us what we lack, and we lack wisdom. There's a little dilemma in the book of James. You might miss it if you're an American because we're not trained to think in biblical categories. Here's the dilemma in the book of James James tells us in James chapter 2 that God is the lawgiver, He gives a law. And if you break God's law, you're accountable for all of it. You are guilty before the lawbreaker. And the only thing the lawgiver Owes a law breaker is judgment. That's all we have coming to us from God is judgment. That's all He owes us. We're trained to think, no, 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 no. God just loves us and He's there to do good things for us when we need Him to come through in a pinch. And James says, no, 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 no. Scratch that out and reprogram it with this God's the lawgiver. You're the law breaker. All He owes you, all you have coming is judgment. But then you read this verse in the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 17, and it says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. You say, wait a minute, James says wisdom comes from above. That's right. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. You have this tension within the book of James where you say, well, which way is it, James? Is God this law giver who owes us only judgment, or is he our Father who gives us good things? Pick one, because those are very different pictures of God. Is he the judge to whom we're accountable, or is he the gift giver, our heavenly Father, who gives us these good things? And James says, Yes, he's both of those things. And the way that you fit them together when they don't seem to fit together is James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives more grace. He gives grace. He gives you what you need at his own expense. He gives you what you're lacking because of what Jesus has done for you. Yes, it's true that Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment that you deserved as a lawbreaker. That's true. Your sin was placed on Jesus. Your transgression was placed on Jesus. We read that from Isaiah 53 earlier. Our iniquities were put on him. He was cursed for us. But he also died to purchase every good gift that the Father would give to us, including the wisdom that we need to be perfect and complete. And you come to the end of that and you tie all the pieces together and you realize, I am incomplete. I am in trouble before God the lawgiver. I do need grace. I need God to count my sin as paid for by Jesus. I need that to happen. But I also need wisdom because I lack it. And if I'm going to be perfect and complete, God's going to have to give that to me. And the only way that the the judge can give a good gift to a sinful person is if somebody's paid for it. That's grace. Jesus not only died for your sin, but he also died to give you every good gift that the Father's poured into your life.